Hi, I'm Paul Fagan, the McCain Institute's Senior Director for Human Rights and Democracy Programs, and you're in the arena with leaders and citizens who are taking character-based actions. In the Arena is a proud member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. For more information, visit democracygroup.org. Oh, hello, everyone. I'm Josette Sheeran, Executive Chair of the McCain Institute for International Leadership, and welcome to this episode of our Authors and Insights Book Talk series, where we interview the authors of important newly released books on American politics, policy, and leadership. It's our intention to engage you in a dialogue that affirms the importance of character-driven leadership and America's leadership in the world. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Cindy McCain about her newly released intimate memoir, Stronger, Courage, Hope, and Humor in My Life with John McCain. In this book, Cindy writes of her nearly four decades as the wife of Senator John McCain and their triumphs and struggles on the front lines of American public service love, and in the arena fighting for the values that have been their guiding light through it all. Central to her story is her role as a mother to their four children, Megan, co-host of The View, sons Jack and Jimmy, both serving in the US military, and Bridget, who's studying at university. I've known Cindy as a humanitarian <laughs> and business leader. She serves as chair of the McCain Institute She's a champion against the scourge of human trafficking of the world's most vulnerable. She's been a champion of the hungry and those trapped in war zones around the world. And she's chairman of her family's business, Hensley Beverage Company. While she's always traveled the world, including to war zones and beyond, she joins us today from her beloved home base in Arizona. Cindy, first of all, happy birthday. And I know Thank this you. is also the week of your wedding anniversary. <laughs> yeah. So that brings up, I'm sure, a lot of memories, mm. but we're so happy to be with you today. Thank so, you. So Cindy, I just wanted to start by saying I've so enjoyed, particularly listening to the audible version of your book. It's your warmth, you. the humanity, the stories come to life through that. But your book is so profoundly and beautifully vulnerable. It's also deeply courageous for that reason. And the reviews that I've read on Amazon and beyond all talk about how meaningful it has been to people. That you've talked honestly and openly about your personal challenges, your family cha challenges. So I'd just like to start with you saying what was the most difficult part of this book to write mm -hmm. and what was the most fun part. <clears throat> Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Josette. I appreciate the time and, and uh, I just wanna commend you for all the good work you're doing at the Institute. Uh, we're so so joyous to have you with us more importantly, but we, we respect and love you for everything that you have done through your years uh, serving our country and serving the world. <clears throat> the most difficult part of the book to write for me, I believe, was probably the, the obvious thing, the, the, the challenge that we had with John's brain cancer and then ultimately he passed. Um, it was difficult because for the obvious reasons that it, you know, it, it, he passed, but also to what I wanted to explain to people is, is really how he did it his way and how we did it our way uh, and uh, against a lot of what people thought we should be doing, which was more aggressive um, 
more aggressive treatment for him, but he had chosen not to do that. He had chosen to do the, the recommended treatments and then really just wanted to be up north at our ranch and, and pass in the kind of beauty and grandeur that he's always enjoyed up there. And that's indeed what he did. And so, so it was hard for me to write though, because, <clears throat> because it was, um, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was my vision, obviously, of what what occurred, but it was also, uh, I think, just the realization for me that he really is gone. And I know that sounds perhaps a little strange, but but uh, after he passed, I went straight back to work. I didn't didn't miss a beat. I kept on going. And so when COVID hit, which is the, during the time that I wrote this book, um, it was uh, for me, it was a very cathartic experience because all of a sudden I had to stop like we all did and begin um, writing this, but also begin to grieve. And because I really hadn't, hadn't, hadn't done much grieving and grief is a very personal experience. I know you know that. And it's also something that that uh, no one else can tell you how to do. So, so for me, it was this was a, a process and also an experience that was very good for me uh, in the long run. But, but the whole idea of writing about his death obviously was the most difficult part of it for me. Uh, the most fun part was describing his humor and the kind of humor that we shared, which was sometimes kind of twisted. <laughs> it was fun. It was uh, the kind of humor that we... Um, you know, that was how you get through things. That was, uh, John always used it. He learned to use it when he was in prison. And, and of course, from there, uh, our family was always had a very humorous side to it. So anyone that spent any time with us knew that. Uh, and so I think writing about the humor and writing about his free spirit in many ways was what I enjoyed the most. And, and me, um, uh, being, you know, being a, having a front row seat, not just to him, but a front row seat to history and and in the life that was shared. So I loved that part of it. And it was a fun it was a fun book to write for me. It was really, really a fun experience. Well, it, it struck me with the testimonials at the time of John's death, how many people spoke about his humor and how much it yeah. lifted them up through whatever yeah. battles they were going yeah. through, even if they were on different sides of the aisle. Yeah. And a little bit later, I want to explore with you partisanship and mm -hmm. division and tribalism in America. Yeah. Um, you boldly open the book with a piece of that humor. And I have to say, even reading it, you could feel the tension with the mm -hmm. strong will of your husband wanting to go to a security conference in Italy after mm -hmm. his diagnosis and all the doctors <clears throat> saying no, he couldn't have mm -hmm. that pressure on his brain, him right. insisting and you somehow using humor to stay with him, break the ice, and carry you through the trip. <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely John McCain, for sure. <laughs> um, you know, as you know, I don't know no if you want to recount your exchange on the airplane, but... Uh... Oh, you know, the whole family had been after him not to go because it was strongly recommended that he not fly that far, not fly at all, actually, and not fly that far. And as I describe in the book, um, we, you know, we're, we're in the air and, and I'm kind of, I guess I'm sitting there perched looking at him like, you know, at any moment he's going to explode. And that's when we had the discussion about, well, he had a dust buster and he'd clean it up if we had to. So it's, John always could level the most tense moments. And it was a good thing because um, it was, it was something that we, 
you know, as we look back on it, it was the best part of it all was this humor. And what strikes me throughout the book is often his jokes. He was the target of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> he was, it was self-deprecating and, yeah. and humble. One thing that really strikes me in the book, Cindy, is everyone knows that John McCain was a fighter. He fought mm -hmm. when he was in prison in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. He fought mm -hmm. for our country. He fought for the things he believed in, even if he had to break parties, even if it didn't yeah. serve his yeah. you know, so-called political interest. You're a fighter. <laughs> You're a fighter. And there are moments in the book where Cindy the fighter comes out, many moments, including when you confronted human trafficking in the world and would meet with law enforcement officials who said, you don't have to worry, we'll protect these young girls as young as seven years old who are being mm -hmm. trafficked, trying to work with the NFL to deal with mm -hmm. this issue. Mm -hmm. um, when, when, uh, insurance companies denied John chemotherapy mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. out came Cindy the bear. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, yeah. I'm not sure the world quite knows the story of, you know, you, you're mm -hmm. being a fighter, but, mm -hmm. but some of those, of, of those, what comes to mind? And you also talk about women not having the self-confidence sometimes to stand up to these things. Right. And that comes through the book as well. Um, what did it take you to, you know, really come forth as a fighter for what you believed yeah. in? No, I think a lot of that had to do, you know, it's when you're young, you know, you're very, you're vulnerable, but you're also very wary of, of in many cases of being, of being expressive because you're not sure how people, what people are going to think of you. And as you know, the older that you get and you're, I'm a mother and now a grandmother, it, it, you 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 gain this confidence that, that's obviously experiential in many ways, but it's also uh, the confidence that that you realize that you do have a voice. At least in my case, that I I do have a voice, and it's okay to express it even if people disagree, and and also to be able to to fight for what you believe in. And that's I found that 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 popped out of me when I when I was trying to get Bridget home from Bangladesh and she had as the story goes I know many of you know but but I had I uh, discovered her in an orphanage in Mother Teresa's orphanage in Dhaka Bangladesh and she had a serious cleft palate and she was 10 weeks old and they were doing the best they could to feed her but she needed the surgeries you know all the things that you would need for a child that had such a disability and uh, I, I just, I, you know, I realized I could take her home. I could get her help. It was, it was easy for me. I had the connections. I had the ability. Um, it, it, but I was faced with about the time we're, we're supposed to leave uh, Bangladesh to come home. I was faced with um, a group of men. I'll put it that way. It was their health department or health secretary, I guess, their, their version of it. And they called me in to talk uh, to them because they weren't sure that, you know, they weren't sure what, what was going to happen and whether this should even happen. And the, the entire meeting was conducted in Hindi. And I, of course, I don't speak Hindi. I only speak English. And uh, at the and finally, I said, may I ask what's going on in English, obviously. And the, the secretary himself said, well, we can do these surgeries and we can fix her here in Bangladesh. And 
both you and I know that little girls in many of those countries are substandard. They're treated as if they're not human beings all too often, and they're 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 not cared for, or if they are cared for, it's in a substandard way. And so I just, you know, we we're under the gun trying to get to the airport, et cetera. And I just at that time slammed my fist on the on the table. I don't know where that came from, but I slammed my fist on the table and and in excuse my language and said, then God damn it, do it. Why haven't you done it? And of course, at that moment, they started stamping everything <laughs> to, get, to get, get me out of the room because they, I was angry. And I, I'd never done anything like that before, especially confront a, an, you know, an appointed member of a government in such a way. But, but, you know, it was for the defense of a child, a little girl that had no, no defense at all. And it was at that point, I really believe I found a voice, uh, at least a voice that was starting to come out. And in that, of course, was able to get Bridget home. And of course, then she became a part of our family, which was not the plan at all. But um, talk about a test of a marriage is when you come home with an infant and introduce the infant to your husband at the airport. <laughs> and he was he was very happy. I mean, he was, and he wasn't really surprised in me at all. He knew me too well. But it's a... I know you know this, but it's it's a voice that you know you you discovered this. At least I did, and and the older I get, I think the louder it gets too. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, it struck me also in those experiences you had your own humanitarian awakening, mm -hmm. and you write yeah. often about being exposed to the vulnerabilities that so mm -hmm. many people face in the world, particularly mm -hmm. girls and women. And seeing that, I saw that directly in you mm -hmm. when I headed up the United Nations World Food Program, the world's largest humanitarian yeah. organization. Yes. The US, um, the US, I think, still supports about one out of every two starving person in the world who gets a mm -hmm. meal. And so US compassion, but you took it upon yourself to come visit, to understand, to visit those sites and really champion that cause. And you did it with human trafficking. You did it with other. What struck me in the book is I never knew your story of how you came to care. Mm -hmm. And that awakening, um, you know, I think is so, that's what can help change the world, right? To create mm -hmm. these kind mm -hmm. of partnerships to uh, help lift people out of the yeah. situations they're in. Yeah. But could you just talk about that? Because you do have the, a humanitarian heart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And I've seen it now for many years, but that part of it, right? It's the anger and then it's the action. Right, yeah. Well, I uh, appreciate you asking that question. Um, you know, humanitarian action, as you know, uh, and, and what I tell people that, that say to me, I really like to get involved, uh, what should I do? And the first thing I tell them is you have to do it from your heart. Something has to move you. Don't do it because you think it's the cool thing to do or because it's you should be doing it, but but do it because your heart tells you to do it. And that's exactly what happened in me. It was it was, again, motherhood enlightens so many women in so many ways. But it was not a lot of people accuse me of having guilt, you know, a kind of a, an American well-to-do woman that really could be doing other things. And it was guilt. You know, it was not guilt at all for me. It was about uh, the utter disbelief that other parts of the world could actually forget their people the way that they do and treat them the way that they do. So it was maybe a little anger in there that things were occurring 
uh, that that sh number one should not be occurring. Number two, uh, people weren't paying attention to. And so, so I think I think in many of the cases, and again, I tell people, you something will move you in your life. Something will touch your heart in a way you can't describe it, but you just know you have to do something. And that's and I'm no different than anybody else. That's what happened to me. And and uh, just the shock and, and reality of what. Uh, goes on or does not go on around the world. And, and uh, you know, I, I explained one time um, about having been in a food riot in Congo. And it was then Zaire. It was during the, the genocide. And I'd never seen anything like that, the desperation. I'd seen desperation, but I'd never seen the, the absolute animalistic um, behavior that occurs when people are hungry. Just simply, you know, and because I've never been hungry but I understand what it can do to a human being after having seen that. And, and also understanding that, that um, so much of this takes place at gunpoint. And so, so I think for, for me it was the, the kind of experience that changes your life. And it's not just what you see and what you do, but it's how you process it and how you work with it. And so for me, it was more about um, beginning that journey. And it is a journey humanitarian action is a journey for people and uh, what I tell people you know you may may not be able to or may not want to go overseas or do anything do any of the things that I've done or been around but there's humanitarian action that needs to take place in your own neighborhood human trafficking being one of them and so I think it's just the bottom line in a simple terms it's 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 your heart it's follow your heart and that's exactly what happened to me nothing more complicated than that but I think, but I will say, yeah. uh, when people describe me as a humanitarian, that's the finest compliment in my mind that they can give me. Because uh, if I'm a humanitarian, then I've done I've done exactly what I wanted to do and where I want to be. Because I think it's a wonderful, wonderful description of somebody. I really do. Well, it. Um... You know, what struck me is you're a humanitarian of action because also what comes through in your book is how even doing small things can make such a difference in an individual mm -hmm. life yeah. and the encouragement and how you dragged your friends on your birthday parties each year out to the front <laughs> of the world and, you know, expose them. This is your way of having fun, is, yeah. you know, learning more and being, being yeah. out there. But, yeah. You know, one thing that came through to me also is just your love of Arizona because you you started your fight against trafficking there, mm -hmm. and you it's it's interesting to try to balance the profound needs that you see in the world, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and sometimes America you know seems much better off than the things you see, yeah. Yeah. but not for getting home, which you no. were just talking about. Yeah, they're not. Um, it's you. You you bring up a really good point because um, in in the first thing I wanted to do when I you know when I realized and and realized that I could do something uh, with regards to human trafficking and really make a difference. Of course, I wanted to head out of the country. And the stark realization is is that it's it's a horrific crime that happens right here. It's right in your own neighborhoods. And when I tell people that, they just assume it's someplace in Asia or someplace in Africa. And to tell them, you know, you're going to find it at your local Circle K, you're going to find it at your airport, you're going to find it on the streets. And it's it's about teaching people to look with better eyes. 
And, and so that's, in my opinion, that's, has been part of this journey, but it's been the most important part of it, which is, is maintaining and taking care of your own local community first. And that's, that's where I started on this, on this issue of human trafficking. And now, of course, we, we, we work uh, nationally and internationally on the issue, which is, is, um, it, it's an important part of trying to make sure, keep reminding many governments and reminding many countries and reminding my own government and my own country not to give up on human trafficking, that we can fix this, but it's going to take all of us to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, Cindy, I think many people might be surprised a bit by the Cindy McCain I meet in this book. You're Gorgeous. You've led, you're, we're a dazzling couple together. You lived a life of power and privilege in many ways. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, you can't go five pages in the book without realizing that throughout your life and your life with John McCain, the two of you had to fight so many battles. Mm-hmm. And they were everything from the deeply personal to the deeply global uh, mm-hmm. to the front lines of American politics. Mm-hmm. And one thing that you know really moved me, and I can see moved some of the reviewers, is that you wrote very honestly about falling into the iron grip, as you call it, of mm-hmm. opioid addiction, mm-hmm. and then needing to break that grip mm-hmm. and hiding it from everyone who loved you because you mm-hmm. were ashamed of it, that shame and that vulnerability that you express in the book I think can help people because mm-hmm. for someone as public as you've been to put that all out there. And mm-hmm. I I would like you to talk a little bit about that because I think there is mm-hmm. such a stigma and yeah. it is a mental health, it's a health crisis, it's it all of those things. Mm-hmm. But just to talk mm-hmm. about, was that difficult to lay out there like that? And what would you say to people who are struggling with addiction now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, for me, it was very cathartic to lay it out because it was it was a, a very publicized problem when I had it, and but for all the wrong reasons. Uh, you know, in the earlier years, you and I are of a generation that where we've experienced the early side of medicine with regards to its treatment of women, and of course now the later years where where we are not just treated well, but we're treated as 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 women for women. And so, so the beginning of all this in those days, and I'm not blaming anybody, let's be very clear. There's no blame to be had here except me on, on my part. Um, I did this, but, but it was the kind of thing where you would go in as a woman. And of course I had kids all over the place and I was, you know, I was had a, a, my husband with a stressful job. And so when I said I had back pain, which I did, I'd blown two discs, didn't know it at the time. Uh, but but I had back pain or I had some kind of pain. It was easy. They give you a bottle of 100 pills and then also say, well, go home and have a drink while you're at it. It's just stress. And it was it was kind of a way to kind of scoot you out the door because people either, number one, didn't understand what was going on with you or number two, really didn't want to deal with you. And so so that happened to me. It happened to me a number of times. It was too easy to get the pills because that was what they would. That's what they did. That was their practice in those days. And as it moved on, and I realized that I had had had, well, I was going down this this whirlpool of a rabbit hole, um, and I I didn't know how to get out. I didn't. I knew I had to. I had to had to figure this out. But um, the shame of it, as you mentioned, and the shame of me telling my husband, 
who was a war hero and someone who you have to, from my eyes, war hero, had been a POW, he'd survived everything. He was this amazing person to, to tell him that I was weak and that I made a mistake. And that was very, very, very hard for me to do. And, but when I did it, I found not only did my husband uh, care for me very deeply, he did, but that he made sure that we processed through this whole thing together. And he was by my side for all of this. So I, I underestimated him. <laughs> and uh, I also underestimated in some degree my own strength because when I stopped, my parents came to me to talk to me and I realized uh, I stopped cold turkey. I never, I never picked up another pill. I never, uh, none of that. I, I just simply stopped. And then of course it became public and, and I'll, the public portion of it, there's always shame involved, but the public portion of it was a misunderstanding media who didn't really grasp the fact that this is a disease. It's not a choice. It's a disease. And then they're shaming of you that somehow you're weak or you're a spoiled rich kid and you're, and oh, you know, drugs, you, and, and the categorization and the cartoons and all the things that go with that. Um, that, in my opinion, done to anybody else could have made them kill themselves. I mean, it was a kind of, it was that kind of pressure. And that's what some of the media did not understand at that time. I know now it's much different because it is a disease and they talk about it as a disease, but the kind of shaming that they did me, and I'll mention the kind of shaming that they've done to Hunter Biden is not fair. Uh, Hunter's struggling and he's struggling just to stay clean and stay sober. And the media just continues after him. That's really damaging and it's also very dangerous. And, and so um, it's, I'm not glad this happened to me by any stretch, but it made me a better parent it made me a better person. And I think it made me a better wife as a result of it. Uh, but I would never want anyone to go through what I did. And it is an epidemic in the United States. It really is. And it's something that I hope that people gain from this book. Um, it, the understanding that if I can do that, then they can do that. That it's okay to admit that you've got a problem. It's okay to admit that you've been weak. And there's no shame in it because there's help out there. And that's what I want people to take from it. I hope anyway, I hope they do. Yes, and and there's help beyond going cold turkey, right? Right, right. yeah, there's, absolutely. There's I would never suggest that to anybody. Really yeah. help, yes. Right. True grit you had in that. <laughs> um, so you're going through all of this and these experiences and mm -hmm. you're on the public stage, kind mm -hmm. of on a tightrope. Mm -hmm. And um, you speak in the book about the Nancy Reagan gaze. And to me, that opens the topic of what mm -hmm. it's like to be a political mm -hmm. spouse in America, mm -hmm. particularly mm -hmm. a political wife, what yeah. you're expected to do and how you put their own, your own expectation to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And maybe many others have the same expectation. And also your sense of failure anytime you weren't perfect yeah. for John, your sense of, of dealing with your own guilt mm -hmm. about that. but. Do you talk about the Nancy Reagan gaze and yeah. how, how, how does one deal with that as they go through life's challenge? Well, you know, when I began this with John, uh, this was 1980. I, we got married in 1980. And then by 1981, he was out and running for Congress. And uh, it, 
I put on myself, I put a great deal of pressure. So a lot of this was self-imposed in terms of the being perfect and being and 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 the the, the largest fear is always for the spouse is is you never want to be the source of any criticism. You know, you're there to support and not be a part of the story, et cetera. That of course things are different now. And so anytime that I felt like I brought criticism onto John, it was devastating for me. I, the guilt and all the all the things. So the Nancy Reagan stare, we coined that. Uh, a lot of us, the political spouses in those days, we coined it because she was amazing at looking at Ron and and really just. I mean, it was it was fascinating to watch. And so the the joke was, and the reality of it was, the rest of us were kind of expected to do the same thing. And the truth is life's not perfect. There are days when I maybe didn't want to do that, or I wanted to be honest with him in terms of the kind of job that he had done that day. It's all those things combined. And um, for a political spouse in those days, perfection was absolutely part of it. Perfection was was um, necessary in many ways because this, because of how you were viewed. Viewed, it, quite frankly, a spouse was viewed as kind of being vapid and being just a sidekick, you know, someone kind of that could be in the room and be there, but not, don't say anything, you know, can't do that. And of course that was not, uh, that wasn't me. And so when we made the choice to raise our children at home in Arizona and not live in Washington, DC, I didn't live there. It was, it made some ripples and it was absolutely the best decision we could have made because it was not just for the children, but it was for the well-being of our marriage as well. The, 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 well, you know, the kind of um, life that can happen in Washington, D.C. can be very damning. And so for me, the best thing I ever did and probably the first part of maybe me becoming a stronger, more outspoken person was saying we're going to raise our kids at home. And John, of course, was in perfect agreement with that. But, um, yeah, the Nancy Reagan gaze, that was, that was we all strive to have that. It was... <laughs> It was, it was, she was perfect at it. The rest of us were very imperfect, so. Well, here you are today. Um, You write in the book about how how politics can bring out the most brutal side Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. people. And I don't think in this interview we need to recount, it's well known, the attacks on your family Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. President Trump. It didn't start there during the, uh, when John McCain ran for president and George mm-hmm. Bush was running, there was an attack on your daughter, Bridget. Bridget, yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, very racially motivated and very mm-hmm. untrue, deeply mm-hmm. hurtful. Mm-hmm. What strikes me is what John and you have symbolized, and John symbolized in the Senate, was he held country first mm-hmm. before the partisanship. Mm-hmm. And in the book, you talk about how for him, friendship was always first, and then mm-hmm. he was happy to disagree and fight the battles. Right. Right. But there was that friendship and respect there. And if he was wrong, he admitted it. And mm-hmm. I think you hear testimony after testimony. I was at his funeral. It was so moving to see people from every side of the political spectrum mm-hmm. really acknowledging that. And what I'd like to ask you is, you talk a little bit about forgiveness, Mm -hmm. because in order to move beyond that, it has Mm -hmm. to be there and it's not easy, Mm -hmm. but also for the United States Mm -hmm. right now, Mm -hmm. in this terrible, divisive 
political environment yeah. we're in, your thoughts of what would John be doing now? Yeah. What could we be doing now? Move beyond mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I can't, I wish I had a nickel for every time I asked, what would John think uh, on things like this? But uh, the truth of it is John was, John was part of an era where uh, in politics, they would fight. Of course they did. They disagreed on things. They, you know, and I'll, I'll start with Kip O'Neill and come all the way, you know, through, through uh, Ted Kennedy, et cetera. Uh, but it was an era where they, where they would fight and and disagree and and compromise more importantly and work across the aisle and then and then it was never personal nothing was ever personal there were no personal attacks you didn't do it for yourself it was for the good of the country and so they did walk off the floor arm in arm go have a drink or whatever they were going to do that night and but that's the way it should be because it was for the right reasons it was country first um but we, see, we have an era now where it's not only become very personal, but it's become very damaging. And uh, I think John, at this particular point, if I could, could just speculate on what he would be doing, I know he'd be very disappointed in what's happening and what has happened. Um, it's the lack of civility, which is a large part of who John was, was civil, you, know, you could have civil discourse and civil disagreement, but it was never personal. Um, I think I think nowadays we're faced with um, a cadre of people within both ha the House and the Senate that believe the only way to 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 get things done is to attack and to to try to harm somebody or try to harm uh, their reputation or something like that. And I don't know how we got here other than the leadership at the time helped to help drive us there. Um, you speak about. Uh, the the ugly side of politics. And yes, we've experienced the ugly side of politics, uh, very much so. But but what we knew was is that John and I, in many ways, were fair game. What, what the harsh part of this was is that our children were not. And so at no time should anybody's kids, not just mine, but anybody's kids be brought into to any kind of a political um, campaign, for, you know, unless they choose to be there. And so that was that uh, that was that was the part I think for me that was the hardest to swallow was how personal it had come it, it had gotten through the campaign but to take it out on a child. Um, but with that said, John and I knew there were going to be bumps along the road. The one bump we didn't anticipate was having to explain to our daughter some years later that no, the president did not hate her because she was black, and that was the question she actually asked me was whether why the president hated her and was it because she was black and which is crushing and uh, what i like to remind any candidate or any group that i speak to uh, words have consequences and so choose them wisely especially when you're trying to to disagree with your opponent um, john was a unique man he as you said there were people from across every every aisle every country everywhere that were there because he was honest and the honesty and his integrity and, and, his, and his civility were who he was. And we, we're missing that right now, we're missing it. I think um, eventually, I believe in the good sense of the American people that we'll swing back to it. But right now, unless the, the voting electorate out here decides we're gonna make some changes, we may be in this mess for a while. That's a whole lot of things in one question, but. <laughs>
You're muted. <laughs> One thing no at the McCain Institute is championed the mavericks of the world. Right. John stood up for that lonely voice somewhere in the world who was making a point that no one wanted to hear but needed to be heard. Yeah. John was a maverick. What was it like to live with him? How did, how did that manifest? Did he read different things? You talked about his love of history. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he, he said he was deeply allergic to group think. Mm -hmm. Very deeply book. allergic to group think. <laughs> he was, uh, you know, John was, was unique in that, you know, his life experience was like none other. So you can't compare him to anything or compare his life to anything because it wasn't, I mean, it was completely different and it was, it was, as you know, was, was challenged in so many ways. Um, he, 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 he read, he, he was a voracious reader. And that was one of the things that when he came home from prison that he said he missed the most was that, uh, was that he hadn't been able to read. So he was a voracious reader, read, he always had two or three books going at once. And I think part of that was, was did instill this maverick attitude because he would read different things and different ideas. And, and um, it was, it was a good thing. I mean, I love the maverick, uh, the maverick in him. In fact, when he wasn't a maverick, sometimes I kind of missed it. So uh, he, but his, what he wanted to represent was what you said, what you just mentioned, not a group think, but a and not doing what you think somebody else might want you to do, but doing what's right. And the, the one of the lessons that we teach our, our next generation leaders at the Institute is about the, the right decision may not be the easiest decision. And those are the kinds of things that you have to learn. If you're going to be a good leader, uh, those are the kinds of things you have to respect and learn from. And so, and that was definitely John. I know many people look, look up to him for that reason. And I also don't think there was anything more. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I think that, I think that was never more um, eloquently discussed than when John gave his concession speech to, during the Obama, you know, during the 08 race. Um, his concession speech spoke volumes about who he was as a man and the kind of person he would have been and is, was as a leader. Uh, and that's those are kinds kinds of lessons that we learned from him from and from his maverick attitude. It was great. What part of that speech are you recalling that really struck you as different from maybe we're hearing? Well, he, he and if you watch the video of it, he he said in the speech, it, it, we we have a new president, and it is up to us as Americans to support that president and give him every opportunity to succeed. And of course, there were boos that came from the audience. And, and John reminded everyone, uh, you know, th this, this is about our country, not about me. And those are the kinds of lessons that I know our kids learn from him. And I hope the country did too, because I, I wish more people would review some of the things that he said and, and wrote about and spoke about, because his ideals were the, were the, were really pure and simple. He was all about serving his country. And that was, I think, the one element that I know we all miss now. I do, I certainly do. And also miss because of the impact that he would have on, on other people within the Senate and the House. And to that point, uh, speaking of legacy, how to keep that alive, because yeah. clearly- That's a big you job. Know, you said he, he was larger than life. And indeed he is, 
And indeed, he many people <laughs> say they hear his voice every day, um, yeah. you know, on these principles. Mm -hmm. But what what are the main areas that you feel are important to keep that legacy alive? Yeah. Well, the most important part, of course, is is the kinds of things that he represented and who he was as a man. And those are things that you can, you know, can can read about and learn about. But what I want to make sure is that his legacy lives for those reasons, but also that kids learn from it and learn what, you know, the, the kinds of things that make make you a good leader and make it important that you do lead, especially as Americans. Uh, we are right now. I mean, I know you've seen it, but we are we have, have been faced with uh, a country, you know, we were always the ones that they looked up to. Uh, when they saw the Americans coming, they knew things were gonna be okay. And that simply isn't the case. Uh, certainly in, during the last four years, it was not the case at all. And it's time that we regain our, our front and center activity on, on the world stage. And John's legacy can be a large part of that if we listen to what he, what he taught and what he learned and what he, what he spoke about, et cetera. And I want people to know that. Uh, being challenged with keeping a larger than life man's legacy alive is a little daunting for me. And so I'm, uh, I work very hard to make sure that, that, uh, that what, who he was and what he represented stays alive. And it's hard though. <laughs> I want to make sure I do it right. So I have to, have to rely on some good advice from good people like you. Well, your perfectionist tendencies come out in the book, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it's easy to lose in this really epic story um, of this life and your life together, that this was the love of your life. Yeah. It's your anniversary. Week. Absolutely. And I yeah. have to say, one of the most touching parts of the book for me was the story you recount of being in the South Pacific on the island where John's grandfather and mm -hmm. father had met, the only place in battle they had met, that had right. been such a place of heroism, uh, written about by Michener and South Pacific, mm -hmm. and uh, and your daughter Megan being upset because you were rough camping, I guess, not glamping, <laughs> and yeah. creatures were coming in and stealing the food, <laughs> but that... <laughs> you and John snuggling together that night and he hummed a song. Could you tell us that story just yeah, as we close? Because just, it captures what he, his sense of adventure, his sense of oh, life. Yeah. And he, he was, he, you know, we, we did do a lot of those kinds of rugged things together as a family. And it was good because we saw parts of the world that we never would have seen. And usually the things that we did do was family history tours. So a large part, of course, having to do with John's family, um, and so it was just the kind of thing that you, you know, you when you've had it's the end of the day, and one or two kids have been upset, and you know, it, it's just it's what family is all about, and what it what what life is all about, and it just at the end of the day, John was John always either had a little story to tell, or would hum or sing even, and that's indeed what he did, and it was. It was just the kind of thing that will always remain in my mind that uh, there we were, you know, we were hundreds, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away from home. And yet the most important thing to me and to John as well were these, these four little human beings and the two of us. And 
that was what meant the world. That was what what our life was all about. Not about all the grandeur of being in the Senate or being, you know, doing the things that we do. But it was about those quiet moments and those those simple things with our kids and our family. And yes, he did hum. He was a terrible hummer, <laughs> a terrible singer, and so was I. So. It, <laughs> And I think he hummed a particular song from South Pacific, you said. Oh, yeah, Some Enchanted Evening, yes. <laughs> His favorite song, oh my gosh, yeah, he was, he, uh, that was indeed. And he would try to, try on occasion to sing it, which is really a hoot, so. <laughs> but yeah, he, that was his favorite book and also his favorite, I guess, musical, because he was able to see it on Broadway. So he he loved it. And oh, it's a beautiful piece. And it was a, you know, and we were there, we were there where Mishra wrote the book. So it was great. Well, your your book opened with a song. Uh, Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. My way. The closing mm -hmm. song, the closing mm -hmm. moment uh, mm -hmm. in John's life. Life. Yes. And that song. What struck me in that song is when you wrote that he said every night should be an enchanted evening. Mm -hmm. And he really, he meant that too. Yeah, he really meant that. Um, he was, you know, he, John lived his life on his own terms and he lived, he, what he taught us to do, he taught us how to live and how to be good people and try to do the best, do our best, serve our country. But he also taught us how to die. And uh, in watching his, his, his grace and his strength and his honor uh, during the course of that time uh, was something, something obviously that, that I will never forget. And I know our family won't either. And yes, he did pass with his music, his playlist going. And it was Frank Sinatra was on singing my way and the hawk that he loved so dearly was perched literally on the, on the roof on a limb. And uh, it was just, John was, John was a unique human being, and even to the very end, it was his way completely. And I love that about him. Well, Cindy, let me thank you for being part of this iteration of Authors of Insight at the McCain thank Institute you. for International Leadership. And I know on behalf of thousands of people, I thank you for your leadership, but also for you and the Senator letting so many into your life sharing so much of your family and your your principles with all of us in the world and thank that you. it continues to be an inspiration every day for so many people so thank you and again thank you happy birthday thank and, you uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you josette and i really appreciate you doing this and being a part of our institute and being a part of the future of what some great leaders uh that ha have and will come from the from the institute, and all of, and certainly all the work that you have done around the world because you have been a complete inspiration to me through the years, and I can't thank you enough for that. I'm and I'm very proud to call you my friend. <laughs>